they were the first ones to tell us they were like how much for that honey and we were like uh twelve dollars and he's like are you are you kidding me he's like 20 what we had was rare and it actually was really good even when i hear ourselves our story i go that's kind of wild but we don't really think of it that way we just sort of go and do it. Like when Adam said, here, there's 40 acres. Let's go be caretakers. Oh, let's plant grain. Oh, let's get a combine. And we're like, okay, sure. Okay. Let's try it. Yeah. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You were just listening to Adam describe some of the pitfalls in his experience beekeeping and growing grain. And you might think that combination is kind of odd, and it's because it is, but that's just who Adam Novicki and Therese McLaughlin are. They're co-founders of TNA Honey and have lived a life of experimentation. In their story, we'll learn a lot about spontaneity and how it's never too late to hit the reset button on life. In fact, when Therese and Adam were approaching their 40s, they saw a post about urban beekeeping and felt ready to try something completely new. They just didn't know that this one simple action would eventually lead them on a crazy journey. So can you tell me a little bit like how you stumbled on beekeeping in the first place? Stumbled is actually the perfect word. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, gosh, over 10, 10 or 12 years ago. And I saw an article about just backyard beekeepers and that there was uh, an interest in backyard beekeepers in Los Angeles. And I was like, hmm, that seems like an interesting and weird thing I can go check out. So there was this free seminar where a bunch of like people got together and discussed how to be backyard beekeepers. And uh, and so I went. And you had no idea about no, no, bees or how no, to I just like them. them. Yeah. <laughs> I like I, I liked the idea of it. I didn't know if I would like the reality of it or if I'd be freaked out. But so I just went. And then people offered to mentor me, like, we'll take you and we'll help you teach you how to be a beekeeper. And I was like, I'll do that. Okay. Were you surprised by like how... I guess, accepting and welcoming everyone I was sort of shocked was. by it because, you know, you know, like in the world, there are so many worlds. And this was a world that didn't know that it was a world and it's a big world. <laughs> so, yeah, I was totally surprised. You into Everybody it. was really nice about it. The people that were into the bees and then were really into the bees and into getting other people to become interested. Did you have any idea, like, what was so attractive to them about like bees and beekeeping like what was like did they share anything it's like to this is why I do it yeah the people that you met I think the overriding feeling was that they, everybody was very sort of preserve preserve the planet and preserve the insects minded and then um, there was the honey and all that seemed to be a secondary thought that there's actually a use other than just making sure that you it's know, more about we, the sustainability we, exactly and so you came back from this beekeeping meeting thing um and what did you like like how did adam find out about it so i came home and i was so stoked about it i was so excited then i started watching you know the school of youtube videos about beekeeping and bees and then as soon as i got interested people started like finding books for me it was just sort of this serendipitous thing and then we rolled around to the holidays that year and Adam, unbeknownst to me, went out and bought me an entire beekeeping thing. Like he bought me a hive and a hive and a smoker. 
and a, and a bee suit, the whole thing. And he's like, if you want to do this, do it. All it took was a single free seminar and Therese was hooked. By the end of the meeting, Therese had caught a glimpse of a smaller society within her familiar Los Angeles, a society she could truly make an impact in. And this impact was needed more than ever. With the brief upsurge of colony collapse disorder from 2006 to 2011, harmful pesticides, and in-hive stressors, there had already been a 60% reduction in hives and a 90% decline in bee colonies per hectare in the past 60 years. Even worse, the growing instances of honey laundering or foreign honey contaminated by sweeteners, unrefined sugar, water, and potentially harmful substances brought new complications to the bee crisis. It was evident that someone needed to step up. So why not her? She could get started on research for a rooftop garden right away. All Therese had to do was get Adam on board. Only problem was he was afraid of bees. Yeah, and so Adam, what was your, uh, like, thoughts when <laughs> Therese was saying all of these these things about the bees and like like obviously she was excited like what were your thoughts on that you know I, I thought it was kind of crazy I, <laughs> I mean I didn't I didn't care about the bees I mean uh, honestly I was the guy staring out the window but I went with her like we we, we got, I got her all the boxes and stuff you know and and the suit but somebody called and said hey there's a swarm uh, in a barbecue in Santa Fe Springs. So we went down there and this experienced beekeeper took the cut out the pieces of wax, you know, from the from the natural hive and showed us how to put them in a piece of rubber band, you know, like, and put them in an empty frame. And it was amazing. Yeah, what was that like, that experience? Oh, that was wild. That was wild to show. Cause remember I showed you the frames, you know, how the that those Langster frames? Well, you know, natural hive, that wax, exists it's a it's kind of oval shaped but we were able to suspend that in a in an empty wooden frame and then the bees built out around it and it became a regular you know like you'd see in a beehive and that day we had to put the beehive that we had just like we got a swarm and we put them in in the hive in the hive box that Adam got me for Christmas I had my little suit on and somebody showed me who then we had to put the whole thing in our car wait inside like, like not like a truck like in a car no it was in it we had a hot it was just a big yeah it was like a van <laughs> so we had to yeah, yeah. we put a tarp over it yeah. and we thought we closed it up pretty well but you know there were some bees, bees like flying around we're like there's bees flying around inside our car and Adam, did you like, did you start to fall in love? Like, it's like, Therese, you, it seemed like you were in love with the bees from first sight, but like, were you starting to fall in love with the bees? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I experienced a lot of pain with her cause you know, I got stung like, but you know, it, I was a waiter in fine dining in Los Angeles, but I was getting older You know, I was in my early, what, early mid forties or whatever. And, and I just said, ah, I can't be a waiter for much longer. And, uh, then in, I just said, why, know, why, why, just, why are you thinking that? Uh, oh, because, you know, I was just tired. I'd been doing it. I, I was at the pinnacle of that industry. I worked at Spago and the Ivy and places, and I had amazing experiences. But to be honest, my feet started to hurt. You know, the marble floors of fancy places were, you know, and also it was kind of meaningless because I am a little, you know, I'm 55 now, but it's like back then I was, what, 45, 44? And it was like, it's a long story. I didn't, I just didn't go the managerial route. And so I, you know, I didn't want to die an old racehorse, you know, so... But then I fell in love with the bees, man. And I, I said, I, I want to go to school and learn about the bees. I also want to learn about farming. I don't really know the traditional route for a beekeeper. I'm assuming that it's not to get your master's. No. <laughs> 
why go to school? At Fresno State, they were like, hey, you're a beekeeper. Why don't you do graduate research on bees and and uh, almonds? Because almond, it's the biggest crop in California. So I said, okay, I got a ton of money. One of the high, it was one of the highest paid uh, graduate uh, projects. Yeah, $75,000, which is for a grad school. Which that's, is huge that's a for huge, a grad school. Uh, yeah. Jeez. And uh, it was a big, big field trial. And, and I got to meet all these really famous uh, researchers. You applied to the grad program, right? Was that getting the grant to study bees? Well, I applied to grad school. I got a lot of grants and stuff like that. But then the research, you have to get money. But it turned out that my research was so uh, interesting that these big organizations, they said, we love what you're doing. And here's $50,000. And the Almond Board said, we love what you're doing. Here's 10 grand. It was a field, what they call a field trial on where we were testing uh, flowers in an almond orchard to see if the bees could get a diverse uh, uh, diet. And uh, it was a big, big field trial because bees have to be super far apart. So it was in four different places in the Central Valley and it was totally exciting. But the cool thing is, is once I got the degree in 2015, they, my advisor said, go to the Almond Board Conference. Because again, remember I told you they spent 400 million. Yeah, I mean, that's where all the big bee money exactly. is. Exactly, so right? he yeah. said, don't leave your poster, which was my research poster. And this guy came by with his son and they were looking for a beekeeper. And so I got hired by a 4,000 hive operation. Wow. And I didn't have any experience. I had hives on the, on the roof of my house. And then I was managing 4,000. You know what I mean? That's like, huge. Oh, it's, you're not kidding. We were like a $2 million company. Wow. What was the company called? Ag Pollen. Yeah. And they, we produced 300,000 pounds of honey, 10,000 pounds a day, like, you know, being harvested. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I knew nothing. So, Therese, you know, basically like the inside scoop, right? So you're following this journey and you're kind of the person that set it off in the first place, right? What are you thinking of of going from I want to watch these bees through the window to now managing like like 4,000 hives? Like what, what what is your perspective on all this? So we got into it and it all started. And then Adam decided he wanted to go to graduate school and it was going to be about plant related stuff. And I was like, yes, just go and you'll figure it out and we'll, we'll figure it all out and it'll be fine. And so when he started, decided to do the bee nutrition study, I was like, that'd be okay, great. And then that was a whole steep, I mean, steep learning curve for, for him. And then I would show up every now and again and help him. You know, we would just do some stuff together because it had to be a two-hander and my mind was blown because he, he designed these experiments and I'm like, Oh, that, oh, there's math. It was just, he, cause he just had all of this, like these amazing experiments and experimental design in mind and just created experiments about bee nutrition. And I was blown away. I was just blown away. And then, like he said, it was true. These companies were like, here, just have money. So then when he got, he got out of school and it was like, he had to get a job. Then he got hired pretty much right away. So I was just excited for him, you know, that going into the commercial beekeeping wasn't the, the world. I didn't, I knew nothing about the world. It may seem surprising that the honey industry is, well, so fruitful, but the U.S. honey industry is actually thriving. 
Bees alone contribute more than $15 billion to the U.S. economy annually when we take their role as a pollinator into account. According to the University of California Agriculture Issue Center, Americans consumed 586 million pounds of honey in 2017. This marks a 65% increase in the consumption from 2009 to 2017. So though Adam first started beekeeping as purely a labor of love, it's nice to see that he had unwittingly stumbled into a growing and valuable industry. Can you tell me a little bit about what commercial beekeeping is and what was that actual world? Like, what was your experience like? Yeah, it, it was pretty crazy. The company that hired me, they took their bees out of state, you know, to Mississippi. Uh, and they brought them up to North Dakota for honey. So I had to go to both of those places. So and, you were traveling a lot. Oh, yeah. North Dakota only has 900,000 people and it's a huge state. It's the biggest honey producer because there's empty space everywhere. I went there and it was culture shock because I grew up in a big family, second youngest of seven. We didn't really travel much. So it was exciting. I got to go to Idaho, Montana, you know, North Dakota. I found, I, I really enjoyed North Dakota quite a bit, the high plains, you know, and commercial beekeeping was kind of crazy. I mean, it politically, believe it or not, it attracts kind of anti-government people. Uh, really? Why? Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. They're kind of uh, nomads. If they cannot pay taxes, then they're, gonna they're, not pay they're taxes, okay. Yeah. I mean, and one thing I learned, you have to just get along with everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, even when I hear people say offensive, stupid things, I would just, I wouldn't laugh and guffaw. I would just realize, like, what's it worth to me? And also, I represented a company. Because you were there to do a job. Because I was there to do a job. And also, the industry is small, believe it or not. It's a... It's worth about 900 million total, you know, which is nothing. I mean, in the world of agriculture, you know, bees are the solution to like yeah, political yeah. thing in America because everywhere I go, I was in a conservative part of Utah. They were like, hey, how are the bees? Some very conservative town in Idaho. Hey, that see my tr company's truck like this truck has a logo. Hey, how are the bees? What is going on with bees? Because like, you know, there's some stats where it's like 1947, they were like, five, eight million hives. And now there's only like two and point one. So or, I don't know the exact numbers, but. As things got more urbanized, the beekeeping, the number of hives went down. There's less honey production, more pollination now. When we were an agrarian society, many had a farm, had their own family farm. And the family farm would have some beehives as part of their, so you'd have a thousand farms or a thousand families with a couple of beehives. But of course, as it's changed, we now have one company with a thousand beehives. When people were uh, growing their own food or growing food for uh, their community, you would have a lot of different crops. And now we've moved into what's called monoculture, meaning there's a whole lot of one thing. And just like people, it's not sustainable to eat just one thing yeah. for any creatures. Here's the problem. This gets back to my research and why they gave me so much money is that almonds even though there's different varieties of almonds it's still a monoculture and if and i always said if you and i only had cliff bars and seven up or whatever <laughs> well you'd be we'd be getting our protein and carbs but we'd be pretty effed up you know by the end of the experiment you yeah. know what i mean and that's what happens to bees if they only one kind of pollen it's just not good you know yeah. so my research said hey what about mustard you know mustard blooms at the same time and and the bees would you know do it and of course farmers are kind of driven by the bottom line. So they say, well, we don't want them visiting those other flowers. We want them visiting just almonds. And, and of course, all the biologists say, that's just silly. I mean, you're not going to be able to control them. Yeah. You know I mean? like, <laughs> they're going to go where they want to go. So 
we were able to show that they would start eating the pollen from mustard, but then once almonds hit, it changed. And they were like, no, we're going to go for this. And we could prove that by, by what I collected. And, you know, so it was really cool. A diet of Cliff Bars and 7-Ups might be okay for a meal, but it shouldn't be everything. Like humans, bees need nutrition from a range of sources, but this becomes a problem when you look at how farms are run nowadays. To boost efficiency and cut costs, large-scale farms use a technique called monoculture. Though planting the same crop over and over makes it easier to manage, in the long run, it increases our reliance on pesticides, pesticides which can kill off entire species. With the UN warning that one-third of all species could go extinct by 2070, it's no longer a debate about how we should farm, but rather how many species we're willing to kill and let go extinct. As dire as it sounds, this nightmare scenario doesn't have to become a reality. One simple yet powerful solution in helping combat mass extinction is simply diversifying our fields. In nature, biodiversity acts as a natural buffer against pests. Less pests means less pesticides, and less pesticides means less chemical runoffs that choke ocean life and kill more species. There's a lot that's going wrong, and research is needed now more than ever. So Adam decided it was time to return to the university scene. The first company I worked for was pretty good, but it was a little frustrating. It's funny when you start to get experience, like people reach out. And also, I went to this Almond Board Conference every year, even when I was just a citizen. They knew me. I was a familiar face. And I got contacted by this brilliant bee researcher, Boris Baer, at UC Riverside. And he had gotten a ton of money to have a big pollination research center and he needed a beekeeper to manage the bees and help the lab. And it was really exciting at first because I was dealing with some really brilliant people and I was just a beekeeper, you know, I had my masters and everything, but I started to get a little bored. You know, I I liked commercial world. The benefits were tremendous, but the pay wasn't so hot. You wanted a a change. And I want to talk a little bit about TNA Honey. Yeah, I mean, we, we're Trace and Adam Farms, you know, LLC, and we had started TNA Farms because we had grain and we had honey on a small scale like this. And people just loved us. And also all my connections in fine dining came back, to, you know, they loved me. If you don't make as much of something, people are willing to pay a lot for it. Yeah. yeah. We had our rooftop hives, right? Just yeah. our few hives. I find that it's so funny that they were, they were literally buzzing on top of the roofs. But we were selling honey on the side of the road. We were literally in that same Honda element that we brought back the, the bees in it. We then got like little containers and made up our own little stickers. And we decided, you know, it'd be funny if we call ourselves TNA. We just thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, and then that stuck. All great businesses started as a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. so on the weekends, we would go to like, you know, local lots, like set up a table and sell stuff. So that was how it all started. And we just had like, you know, little plastic containers. Like we had even afford to buy the bottles yet. And then we just made up our own little labels and just the whole, it was just like, like gorilla beekeeping. Yeah. And uh, it was all just that word of mouth. And then Adam had wanted to get some land somewhere up north so we could get more hives and put more. So he found, he has this amazing ability to find pieces of land and have people give it to him. <laughs> it's true, it's happened many. Gets in a hold of this couple named Marty and Lily. They had a, a plot of 40 acres in the Cuyama Valley that they wanted to sell. They had to leave the state. So they asked us if we wanted to be the caretakers of their property while it was for sale. And yes, we could put our bees on their 40 acres. Yeah, this is part of Adam magic. So 
while we were there, and it was this really adorable old house right out of a Wild West movie. Yeah. And then we, Adam was like, why don't we grow gray? And I was like, okay. Where did that idea come from? Who knows? <laughs> so Adam bought a combine, sight unseen from somebody in Oregon. He bought a 1966 John Deere combine harvester. With The brakes didn't work. And we taught ourselves. <laughs> so we planted this grain. We didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> and we bought a harvester, a combine harvester. And we didn't know what we were doing. We literally had to download a manual. That's the amazing thing about this TNA Farms and the TNA Honey. We were able to make about 2,000 pounds of honey and... 2,000 pounds? Oh, yeah. We had 50 hives, made about 40 pounds each. So, I mean, it was a lot of honey. So, we were able to expand our footprint a little, but the demand for our grain and our honey was so high, it just, we would sell out, like, super quick. And then the TNA Honey came because, you know... My parents, you know, passed away. My father passed away four years ago and my mom passed away last year, but I received some money from their estate and I said, oh God, I can expand. So without a forklift, you cannot scale up in yeah. this industry. So I was able to get this truck and a forklift and a trailer. After we got all this grain, we started selling at the farmer's market in Atwater. I found these two um, tabletop stone grain mills that were these antique we would mill our own grain so and make flour. So then I learned how to bake. So I would start baking bread. At the farmer's market, we sold honey. We sold bread, candles. That's amazing. So you had the full setup. We oh, are yeah. out of our minds. Wow. So we're like, okay, sure, let's do that now. In many ways, Therese and Adam's lives parallel the organic chaos of a beehive. They're constantly zipping from one endeavor to another, all while expanding their central operation, TNA Farms. Just as TNA wasn't established overnight, neither was the tradition of backyard beekeeping in LA. In 1879, the city banned the practice on the misbelief that bees damage fruit. Though scientists debunked the claim a few decades later, people's fear of getting stung kept the ban in place. Ironically, even without legalized beekeeping, bees proliferate in LA. In fact, the city inspector estimates that there's at least 10 colonies per square mile. Left on their own, these wild bees are actually more dangerous than those managed by beekeepers. When beekeepers domesticate a hive, they replace an aggressive queen with a docile one. This in turn reduces the likelihood of bee attacks. Still, it wouldn't be until 2015 that LA finally lifted the 135-year-old ban, freeing enthusiasts to swarm the beekeeping scene at last. As TNA began to scale, so did Therese and Adam's challenges. On a more serious note, I mean, like I said, gratefully, when my parents passed, getting that infusion allowed me to scale up, you know, and that's where we're at now. We have 200 hives, all probably produce conservatively, probably five or 6,000 pounds of honey. <sighs> the pandemic screwed us up. You have to plant in December and right before the pandemic hit, some shyster who didn't represent the land that he was trying to get us to pay him the rent on. We almost got conned. So that screwed us up, you know, so we couldn't plant because we dry farm. So if you don't catch the December rains, you're done. You, you need 15 inches of rain to grow a dry farm wheat crop. So that screwed us up. And then the pandemic hit. Also, uh, well, I'm, it's not a secret, but I, I got sick in 2019. I, I was diagnosed with cancer and uh, I beat it. It was a colon cancer, but it was advanced. That changed everything. Honestly, that's when I stopped working at UC Riverside because all my beekeeping friends came out of the woodwork. 
And also, you know, I know I made that joke earlier about that person, you know, about their politics, but so many beekeepers who on paper, you'd think like, I'd never be friends with that guy in a million years, you know what I mean, or whatever. They were so nice and came out of the woodwork, you know what I mean, like to see if I was okay. And I told my wife, I said, man, that's where I wanna, I wanna get back into it, you know, uh, which led me to bee flow and then now to where we are. Teresa and Adam treat life like one big experiment. And as with any experiment, there are bound to be uncontrolled variables. Rather than turn tail and run in the opposite direction, the pair sought out all the resources they could to keep their engine running. Many times it can feel daunting to look for help when we're unsure if we can get it. But one lesson to remember is that knowledge is not a finite resource. We can't run out of it, nor do you have to pursue it alone. Knowing how to access the skills and resources of your network, aka human capital, is more important than just knowing the answer outright. When the couple wanted to scale, their friends offered them a forklift. When they just began selling honey, their community assured them that it's okay to charge more. Finding a solution can be as easy as asking a question or admitting, hey, I need some help. When it comes to learning, the only thing we can do wrong is never look for the knowledge at all. Luckily, Teresa and Adam were willing to share some of the wisdom with us. What was like maybe a, a lesson that you've learned that you wish you could tell yourself at the beginning of this journey? My thing would be to have more confidence. I worked in a very high-end world, but I grew up very middle-class, so I had conflicted feelings about it, waiting on the rich and famous. But I realized because of our connections with people, like we're friends with this hairdresser and a makeup artist. They were the first ones to tell us, they were like, how much for that honey? And we were like, uh, $12. And he's like, are you, are you kidding me? He's like, 20. What we had was rare and it actually was really good and we should charge more for it. That's one thing. I know it sounds just totally capitalistic, but I would have more confidence in that because we would apologize a little bit for charging. Yeah. For knowing that it's valuable and yeah. representing that. I love that you say confidence, but I honest to goodness, I just feel like confidence can be overrated because I have no confidence in doing so many things. I just don't. I don't get confident until I've done it a million times and done it a million times right. Oh, I hate this word, but it's true. Being courageous, going, you know what? What's the worst is going to happen? You're going to hate it and you'll stop. It won't go, it won't go well, and you'll, it'll hurt for a while. Like, just finding out that you can do things that you didn't think you could do, or finding out, like I said, there's so many worlds within the world, within the world. There are so many things to do. Like, there's just so many things to do. And that you can do them. You don't have to be good at it. Even when I hear ourselves, our story, I go, that's kind of wild. But we don't really think of it that way. We just sort of go and do it. And if it's like when Adam said, here, there's 40 acres, let's go be caretakers. Oh, let's plant grain. Ooh, let's get a combine. And we're like, okay, sure. Okay. Let's we'll try it. Yeah. The worst thing that's going to happen is, is you won't like it. Whatever. And the best thing that will happen is that it changes your life and you're amazed. And we're still doing that kind of stuff. You know, we are still always trying to having different things go on. Adam had come home in December and I'd started painting painting paintings and it was all over the they were all over the house and he said so is this what you're doing now and I said no this is what I'm doing also <laughs> I love that so I think the biggest thing that I would have told myself which was kind of what I went to, into just to remind myself is you don't have to be scared it's okay it, it's okay because I'm not particularly confident in things but if I can just be brave enough to like just show up just show up and do it Show up. Just show up. 
It's funny, but these words transport me back to when Therese and Adam took their first step into the beekeeping world. Too often, people are expected to have their paths figured out by their 40s. But Therese and Adam show us that it's okay if that's not your story. When you're open to change, reinventing yourself can be as simple as attending an interesting seminar of creating a bread recipe from scratch and just keep doing it. Finding one's calling doesn't happen all at once in a light bulb moment. Rather, it's a process that unfolds over a lifetime and can be found in some of life's most unexpected yet cherished experiences, such as selling their first bottle of honey or bonding with someone they didn't think they could bond with. Zest and experimentation permeate every season of Therese and Adam's lives. They let it buzz around in bee boxes and stir in the freshly tilled soil. They refined it on antique stone mills and kneaded it into loops before sending it out into the world as a finished product. Life isn't a direct shot to any one destination. It's more like the flight path of a bee, sometimes spiraling towards the ground, sometimes soaring through the clouds. You never know what you might find in the next field over. So keep exploring and keep experimenting. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Nay B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez. Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Haglin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Aiden Ashworth, Mickey McCollum, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>